This is Radio Maria, and we now present Word of Life. This program is a rebroadcast. So we're reading once more from The Love That Is God. I think this is our uh, part six, but I'm not completely sure. I must make a note of that next time I, I write down where we stopped in the book. But in, the, in our last reading, we were, we were looking at um, the, uh, Frederick Christian Bowersmith's sort of discussion of um, walking into a, into a great European cathedral and, and standing before a, a crucifix and his friend's sort of understanding of the, the crucifix as being something that sort of is, is designed to evoke feelings of, of guilt um, in, the, in the Christian, um, and that that's the purpose of the, of the crucifix. Um, what we're going to, uh, to look at today is to see how, you know, perhaps s- some of our reaction at, at looking Christ on the cross might be sorrow over what our what our sins cause what what the effect of sin is but that actually we might look and see something more and um and it's also important i think to remember when we sort of say well why did christ die on the cross um that it doesn't have to be just one reason he died on the cross there might be um many many reasons and and the the problem with some sort of heretical positions um that are other denominations get themselves into is because they they focus on one truth to the exclusion of all others and so sort of get a rather sort of myopic and and distorted view of things so we're on page 20 27 um if any of you happen to have uh, bought the book which i really suggest you do because it's wonderful and we should support good writers this is though not without a certain logic I think it is mistaken to see the cross in terms of guilt over the punishment inflicted by God on Jesus instead of on us. While some Christians might think about the crucifixion in this way, many do not. The logic of the idea of Jesus as the recipient of divine punishment seems to presume that the dilemma that sin has created for the human race is chiefly one of divine anger. Sin is bad for us because it angers God. Or perhaps God is bound by the demands of justice in such a way that, even if God were not angry because of sin, God could still not let go of the punishment that is due to us without becoming unjust. Both of these seem to be questionable presumptions. And so just to to reflect on that one moment, there are a a very large number of Christians who basically believe that, you know, sin really angered God and that um, God couldn't let go of the anger. And so therefore God had to take out the anger on uh, someone or or something 
um, and that the the someone who God took his anger out on was his son. And so by seeing his son die on the cross, that that somehow appeases the the anger of of God, um, which I think sort of leads us to a, a rather strange understanding of what God might be like. But nonetheless, some people hold to that. So let's continue. Jesus's parable of the prodigal son in which the father rushes out to meet his wayward son, who is returning home after wasting his inheritance, suggests that God is not angry with the sinners. If we are to ascribe any emotion to God based on this parable, it would seem God's response to sin is sorrow and not anger. Likewise, there is no suggestion in the parable that the father cannot simply forgive his son that he is bound by some inexorable justice to impose a penalty upon him. The parable does not trivialize sin, for the lost son's misdeeds cause him considerable suffering. But this penalty for sin is not something imposed by his father. It is rather what I earlier, appealing to St. Augustine, described as the coming close to nothingness that follows upon our turning away from the source of our life and existence. What is most striking in the parable is that the father, who would be well within his rights to let his son come before him groveling, indeed he would be well within his rights to continue to hold his son accountable for squandering what he had given him, does not even give the son an opportunity to grovel, but casts aside his paternal dignity and runs out to meet his son and embrace him. Jesus is the God who is love running out to meet us wayward wasters, who have squandered the divine gift of our existence. The question is, why does this love that is God take the form of the cross when it shows itself to us? And so I just want to stop and pause um, for, for one moment there. Um, so we see here that that um that the Barrismith is, is pointing out that God doesn't have to uh to punish um sinners and also that perhaps anger isn't the uh the predominant emotion of God insofar as it's correct to speak of God having emotions, which we have to appreciate there's a certain limit in our in our language when we when we do that. Um but that sorrow might be a, a more helpful way of, of, of understanding God's reaction to, to sin. Um, and I think uh, parents might, might well relate to that. In, um, they think, well, sometimes you don't need to, to punish a child who's done something wrong. They, they realize that, that what, they've, what they've done is, is wrong and, and, and sin and the the effects of living in sin can be their can be their own punishment sometimes as as is the case with the the prodigal son who finds himself envying the the pigs as they eat from the the trough you know how reduced from from what he was he finds himself because of his because of his sin um and actually i think sort of sorrow is a is a much more helpful and, and productive emotion for us to to experience when we when we see others sinning um and particularly when when that sin is a, against us because anger from from my experience and and from what i hear in the in the confessional rarely 
leads to any sort of resolution, but rather when I sort of sorrow for for what the other is sort of putting themselves through, when I when I sorrow for for what they could be and who they are being, then that seems to be a a, a place which inspires greater greater love and uh, and is more likely to inspire prayer. So I just want to, to repeat that last paragraph that we, we read once more in the question it poses as we enter our, our next section, because I think it contains such a beautiful image of who God is. Jesus is the God who is love running out to meet us wayward wasters who have squandered the divine gift of our existence. The question is, why does, why does this love that is God take the form of the cross? when it shows itself to us. If we are going to understand the death of Jesus as a revelation of divine love, and why God would choose such a means to show to us the love that God is, then we need to see how the cross of Jesus is related to the life of Jesus. <clears throat> Traditionally for Christians, this has meant that the significance of Jesus' crucifixion is rooted in his identity as the Eternal Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Word of God who has taken upon himself our human nature. As the prologue to the Gospel of John puts it, 
the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Born of Mary, becoming flesh, Jesus is truly human. In the words of the 5th century church council held at Chalcedon, alluding to the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, he is like us in all things but sin. Yet, even in taking upon himself a human nature, Jesus remains the eternal divine Son. In the words of the Nicene Creed, born of the Father before all ages. Therefore, on account of his humanity, his death on the cross is a truly human death. But on account of his divinity, the cross is truly the death of the immortal God in human flesh and therefore takes on cosmic redemptive significance as the defeat of death and sin. So just a comment on that um, quickly. Here's sort of Frederick um, Bauschmidt lay, lays out to us like a very important thing about the, um, the, the Catholic understanding of, of who Jesus is and, and one that if we don't get right leads us into all sorts of error and has been the, the sort of the result of, of lots of sort of heresy and, um, and strife in, in the church. Um, the fact that Jesus has two natures but is one divine person. So he has a fully human nature being born of Mary, and yet conceived by the Holy Spirit, he has a fully divine nature. And yet he doesn't have a split sort of personality. Um, this isn't sort of two people sort of operating under, under one skin. There is one divine person. And so what we say of, uh, of, of, of one, what occurs in one nature happens to the one divine person. Um, and that's why we can properly talk of Mary being the mother of God, because she is the mother of Jesus in his humanity, but because his humanity is indivisible from, the, from, his, from his divinity, in that he is one, one person, therefore she is truly the mother of God, Though not the mother of God of Jesus, not the mother of Jesus's divinity, which comes from the, the Holy Spirit, and that's difficult to uh, to sort of fully grasp. Um, but and so that's why it sort of people easily slip into just focusing on on one or the other. But if uh, if we only focus on on one or the other, then then we lose the fullness of the reality of of who Jesus is, and we reduce him to to somebody who it's just easier for us to understand. And, and as we'll come to see, if he he's not fully human, then it's not us who he's saving. Um, and if he's not fully divine, then he's not capable of saving because we cannot save ourselves. And I've I've I think I may have mentioned on air once before that I I've sometimes tried to use the the illustration um, which gets harder and harder to use with people because it requires having a coin in your pocket but asking people to pull a, a coin out of their pocket and to try and look at both sides of the coin at the same time um, and if and if you do that you will realize it's nigh on Im impossible um, although one clever um, kid in the class once pulled out his phone and, uh, and and put it on mirror mode so that he held it behind the coin 
he looked at the front and could also see the back on his phone. But without the assistance of a phone, we can only look at heads at one time or tails at one time, not both of them. And yet we know that the coin has two sides. And I think that's helpful to remember about Jesus. And in some passages in the in the Bible, we get a great, greater sense of, of his humanity. Um, so when it speaks about, um, you know, Jesus in, increasing in in wisdom um and jesus would have would have learned things as he uh, as as he grew up and he would have learned from his mother and and his father and yet in his divinity he doesn't sort of increase in in wisdom but in a certain way in his divinity he's he's chosen not to sort of infuse that knowledge into into his humanity and as i said that's difficult to comprehend but difficulty to comprehend is is not, is not a reason to sort of simplify god it's a reason to just spend more time in in awe of the mystery so after that rather long in interlude let's let's resume our text um yet there is more we can say about the connection between jesus's life and death than this after all if all that mattered was that God became incarnate and died a human death, then it wouldn't have made any difference if Jesus had died as a child rather than as an adult. In connecting the life of Jesus to his death, we need to look not simply at the fact of his human life, but also at the kind of human life he lived. And just one more sort of interlude again here. That point is really important and uh and reading this book actually changed uh the way i i make an act of contrition at confession because i think i used to say you know oh my god because you're so good you gave your only son our lord jesus christ to suffer and die for us and now i say oh my god because you are so good you gave your only son our lord jesus christ to live among us to suffer for us and to die for us because the life of christ is important um, but there's a danger that sometimes we just focus on the, the passion and the death as having importance, but rather all of the life of Christ is redemptive. So let's continue with the text. In connecting the life of Jesus to his death, we need to look not simply at the fact of his human life, but also at the kind of human life he lived. John Chrysostom wrote in the late 4th century, all that Jesus did and suffered was for our instruction. This means that it is not the mere fact of Jesus' life that shows forth the God who is love, but the particular shape of the life he lives. And this same life is what leads to his death, not simply in the sense that all human life eventually ends in death, but in the sense that how he lives his life will lead people to want to take that life from him. Um, here just a, a quote um, from a Dominican brother of mine from, uh, from our, our province, Herbert McCabe, who said, um, you know, if you love, they will kill you, but if you don't love, then you're dead already. Um, and so the, the point that Bauschmidt is making and, and, the, and that Herbert McCabe is, is making is that Jesus is Death is a result of the way that he lived. So let's continue with Bauschmidt's text. Ignacio Elecuria, 
a priest and philosopher who worked on behalf of the poor in El Salvador, argued that the question, why did Jesus die, is inseparable from the question, why did they kill him? And indeed, the why did they kill him has a certain priority over the why did he die? Because Jesus does not merely die, but is killed by powerful forces who take offence at his life. It is worth noting that Elokuria himself, along with seven others, was killed in 1989 by government soldiers because of his advocacy for a negotiated peace in El Salvador's civil war. So, what does Jesus do that leads to him being killed? Mark's Gospel tells us that Jesus begins his ministry by travelling through his native region of Galilee proclaiming, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What Jesus means by the kingdom of God is suggested by a few lines in the prayer that he taught his followers. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Because human beings have abandoned God to live for themselves, the world has taken on dark contours that do not manifest what God wills for creation. The kingdom of God is a way of talking about the restoration of creation through God's will being done in this world in the same way that God's will is accomplished in heaven. It is an image of how the darkness of this world could be lifted if people would turn away from, repent of living solely for themselves, and turn back to living for the God who is love. What Jesus calls the good news is his proclamation that this is beginning to come to pass. The kingdom is drawing near. It is drawing near in the words and actions of Jesus himself. So just one more uh, reflection from me before we go to our, our second music break. Um, as I was reading these words today, I was minded of the, the fact that we have the, uh, the, the relics of um, St. Bernadette of Lourdes um, in this country at the moment. Um, They've been in Westminster Cathedral for the, the past few days and then went to uh, St. Mary's Twickenham um, yesterday and I'm actually preaching there um, this evening and I'll, I'll be sharing the homily that I'm, that I'm going to, to give uh, later on um, at 1.15 today on our, on our word for, for today. But one of the, the remarkable things about Lourdes is the sort of the, the inversion of the, uh, of the order of the world and the and the making sort of present of the 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 order of of the kingdom of of God, and that striking, astonishing, and beautiful sight of all the the poor, the the frail, the the sickly, um, coming first in in that in that procession, being given pride of place, being being recognised as intrinsically good. Um, not being hidden away, nobody trying to end their suffering by ending them, but rather just recognizing their their dignity and their and their goodness and their being made in the image and likeness of God, and recognizing Jesus's special concern for them. 
And that's something which it would be uh, beautiful to, as St. Bernadette of, of Lourdes comes to, comes to us, to try and make um, more of Lourdes um, present in, in our lives and, and, and in the communities in which we live. continue with our, our reading and, and sort of Bauschmidt's just been calling our, our attention to the fact that, that to ask why did Jesus um, die we have to ask why was he killed because um, you know he didn't just die of natural causes people killed him as a result of the, the way that he lived and therefore let's look at the way that Jesus lived in order to understand why he why he died how did Jesus's words and actions make God's kingdom present. The actions that draw the most attention initially, his healings and other miracles, suggest that God's kingdom will be a time and place from which human suffering, whether sickness or hunger or natural disaster or even death, will be banished. The actions that most irritate the religious authorities of his time the audacity of forgiving sins without requiring people to go through the prescriptions of the law given to Moses, suggest that the kingdom of God will be a time and place of reconciliation between God and humanity and among human beings. And his verbal teachings, 
whether explicit instructions like the Sermon on the Mount or elusive parables like the story of the prodigal son, sketch a picture of human life characterized by a willingness to be vulnerable and to trust in God, a renunciation of privilege and power and violence, and above all, a sense of joy and surprise at the sheer goodness of God. These actions and words taken together not only describe the kingdom of God, but show Jesus to be the one who makes that kingdom present to people. At the heart of Jesus' proclamation of God's kingdom is a call to live as if God truly is love. A love that is, as the Old Testament Song of Songs puts it, strong as death, passion fierce as the grave. Jesus tells his followers, do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying. For it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Jesus knows that the nations of the world live a life of striving after security, fearful of human enemies, and an indifferent providence. Jesus is not, of course, opposed to people working for a living. He himself was apparently a carpenter by trade. But he is opposed to worldly striving that proceeds as if we are each in this thing for ourselves. Children abandoned by God our Father to make our own way. He is opposed to any way of life that by its anxious striving and lack of trust denies the love that is God. He calls his followers to strive instead for the kingdom that is free of striving. And just a word on, on this and Jesus' words on sort of you know, abandonment to, to providence. Um, the time that we're, we're in at the, at the moment, I think, is, is for many people a time of, of real worry. Um, you know, the, the prospect of, uh, of being without sort of heating and without electricity is a, is a much more real prospect for, for many people than it, than it has been perhaps at, at any time in their, in their lives, particularly for those of us born after the, after the war. And, and, and these words of Jesus might sort of jar here. And yet I think with the, the, the visit of, of St. Saint, Saint Bernadette at, at the moment, to realize, well, these needs aren't, aren't an obstacle to my becoming holy. Um, in fact, it's, it's suggested in the, in the book that I was reading about the, the life of St. Bernadette by um, Père René Laurentin, that um, you know, one of the reasons Bernadette's family was, was always trapped in destitution in a sense because it was because they um they were so bad at, at business and always gave um sold far too cheaply um to the to the poor who had need rather than sold what they would have needed from sold things from the mill at the price that they would have needed to actually make money and, and make themselves more comfortable and yet that family became holy especially that that child who who knew so much poverty and, and hardship. And yet for 
for those of us who who have more um there's a there's a you know an exhortation in 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 Bauschmidt's words and 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 in those of Christ that do do we go on acquiring more just so that we might have more or rather will we look and will we will we see the need of 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 others and provide for it even if it means us having less um we give sometimes not just out of our out of our surplus um but give um have and and have a little bit less in an order that others might might have what they what they actually need um and to think that you might be a part of the way that god's providence is going to to take place um that god's providence so often works through through his instruments through his through his creation and you might be part of the way that god is seeking to provide for the the needs of the of the poorest but he needs your yes just as he needs needs mary's yes and just as he required the the yes and the and the bravery of of bernadette to insist on our lady's message even when others sort of ridiculed her or wouldn't listen to her so let's continue we might wonder why would his proclaiming of the kingdom of god and making it present in word and action make anyone want to kill jesus it is worth remembering that the phrase kingdom of god is a political metaphor so too is the term messiah which increasingly is applied to jesus over the course of his ministry it is associated with ancient israel's king david whose reign is held up as an ideal to which later kingdoms failed to measure up jesus's proclamation of the drawing near of god's kingdom is heard by many as a veiled political threat he is preparing for a kingdom that will replace the ruling political and religious authorities and restore things to the davidic ideal and these powerful forces are not wrong in seeing jesus as a threat while he has no intention of setting up an alternative kingdom as they understand it he is saying that through him it is now possible to live in a new way enlivened by the love that is god free from worldly striving and that living in this way will show that all worldly kingdoms are built on domination rather than vulnerability violence rather than peace grasping rather than trust we might say that the words and actions of jesus do not so much seek to tear down the walls of earthly kingdoms as to undermine their foundations so that they will collapse under their own weight and this must not happen it would result in chaos if military might and religious obedience do not keep a lid on things the passion seething just below the surface of human society will burst forth in uncontrollable fury better to let the roman governor and the high priests in jerusalem direct focused fury at jesus better to take jesus definitively out of the picture as the high priest caiaphas says to the council that controls religious affairs in israel it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed
And so I think we'll bring our, our reading of the, the text to a, to a close there um, for today. I'm conscious sometimes when someone on the, in the street in, in, in the habit, um, you know, people come up and talk to you, and in the, in the main, um, they're very sort of friendly, good-natured conversations. But, but sometimes you, you get people who are really adamant that you've made a, a terrible decision. And it's not so much because they sort of think that belief in, in God is wrong, but they think that this particular way of of trying to to live in relation with 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 God is is wrong. And they say, Oh, you'll you'll resent um giving up what you've what you've given up. Um, that you know, you might feel fine now without a wife, but someday down the line you're gonna be um angrier about it and you'll realize that the church has coerced you into into doing this. And in a certain way, religious living um the vows of sort of poverty, chastity and, uh, and obedience are a certain challenge to the ways of the world. Even though I'm not going around telling people that they can't have money, they can't have power and they can't get married. I'm just simply living out a different way. But to people who have decided that essentially sort of money, power and sex are essential to being happy, then the, then the life of, of religious is a is a is a challenge to them even if not a, a sort of a verbally spoken sort of attack um, and in a certain sense all all christians are are called to the evangelical councils the way that that those councils will be lived out in the in the life of of each of us will look will look different in the same way that sort of dominican poverty isn't so austere as the as the poverty of say the poor Clares or or Franciscan friars of 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 the renewal, um, and the the poverty that a that a family where one of the parents or both has a has a good job will look will look different. But we are called to to say that there there is a different order structuring our lives, and that these these things of um, particularly money and power are. Are means to to an end, not ends in them in themselves. And then if our life doesn't sort of witness to that in some way, um, then then something in our in our lives does does need to change in order that we can start to live in that relationship with God, which is to to live in the kingdom of God. Because the the kingdom of God is is not so much a, a set of set of rules. Um, or a particular state, but rather a, a new way of living in relation to to God. Jesus is the is the kingdom of God, and to to live um, in the kingdom of God is to to participate in His life and to cherish what He cherishes.